Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're going to jump into this very quickly today because I'm excited to have as my guest Roger Gottlieb, author of Morality and the Environmental Crisis, and Roger is eloquent, with a piercing intellect, completely comprehensible, and a passionate advocate for making the changes that will make it possible for humans and other species to find health, balance, and continued existence on the earth. He is a professor of philosophy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts and author or editor of some 20 books, many focusing on aspects of how to wrestle with the looming environmental crisis. Roger Gottlieb joins us by phone from Worcester, Massachusetts. Roger, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. I just finished over the weekend reading Morality and the Environmental Crisis. How long have you been deeply engaged with your concern for the environment? I would say since the early 1990s. I had done a spate of writing on other philosophical topics, uh, Marxist theory, the implications of the Holocaust for philosophy, contemporary spirituality, and it took me a while to get around to the environment, not because I didn't know it was there, but because I was too scared to look at it because I had a hunch it was bad. But by the early 1990s, I screwed my courage to the sticking place and uh, was able to face it, and I've been writing about it in various forms ever since. So Kyoto and things happened in the 90s. But for me, and I think I must be a few years older than you, or 10 or 20, I don't know. In 1970, I was a sophomore in high school, and we had the very first Earth Day. And I gave a presentation, was part of giving a presentation to the school. When are your early cognition, recognitions, connections to the environment? Well, I had the stereotypical, not very happy childhood, and to soothe my spirit, I'd go out to the natural world. I lived in a fairly rural suburban area, but quite rural at that time, and there were woods near my house. I was in the Boy Scouts, and being out with trees and grass and the ocean when I had a chance uh, always seemed magical to me, always seemed welcoming, always seemed safe in a certain kind of way. As I emerged into the new left in the mid and late 60s, it was clear to me that a great deal of social life was both oppressive and irrational. And it wasn't hard to imagine what this was doing to forests and air and water and other species and to the human beings, too, especially the ones who were poor and less advantaged. So, as I said, I knew it was there. And, you know, it took me a while to getting around to just seeing how bad it was and really what we've done to the earth. And, and also, I found that my earlier study of the Holocaust and of radical movements in general and of the Marxist critique of capitalism, all these things fed into an understanding of the depth and the significance of the environmental crisis and also gave sort of slight shadowy hints about what we might do to change our course. I'm going to just grab a little bit there. You mentioned being in the Boy Scouts. I was Boy Scout for a couple of years, mm -hmm. around when I was 13, 14, 15. What state were you living in? Was it Massachusetts at that time? No, I was, I was in Westchester County, which is a suburban area north of New York City, about 25 miles out. You know, when our, our hikes and our sleepovers and this sort of thing, and, you know, helped teach me to be comfortable in the woods and camping and sleeping in tents and carrying a backpack. 
it just, you know, it never got old. It never got tiresome. I was an Eagle Scout and Order of the Arrow and all that sort of thing. But I really loved being out there. As I grew older, I, I managed to find myself in places that were quite wild, like hiking up to Everest Base Camp in 1970 with no Sherpas or guides or anything, just hiking up there with a couple of friends or sleeping on the beaches and islands in the Mediterranean later in the 70s, going for you know 10-day backpacking by myself in the Rocky Mountains. It always seemed like this was a place, this earth was a place that could be welcoming. And to then realize, as I do now, that the snow on the top of Mount Everest is so polluted that you couldn't boil it down and drink it, it's toxic. Or that if you go three miles down from the surface of the ocean, you find giant squid with furniture chemicals in their bodies. Or you find that the average infant in America is born with 50 to 100 toxic chemicals already in their bloodstream. It's really sad. I mean, among other things, it makes one angry and makes one scared, but it's also really a matter of grief, I think, to think what we have done and how much of what we have done is not necessary, not helpful, not beneficial, is just fuels an illusory immediate ease. It fuels consumerism and it fuels gargantuan profits for the select few and military power for a few others. You talk about all the different aspects of this. You're a professor of philosophy, and yet I note that the title of the book is Morality and the Environmental Crisis, whereas a lot of people would think you'd start with ethics. You do talk about ethics in the book, obviously, so you're not just morality. Why did you choose morality for the title as opposed to ethics? Well, some people think there's a difference between what the two terms mean. I don't. I don't think there could be any systematic attempt to separate them. I like the term morality because, in a way, it's a little more accessible to people. People know what it is to be moral. They have moral beliefs, moral claims, moral criticisms. It's a little less highfalutin than ethics, but it really means the same thing. And it's, you know, the title is rooted in the notion that, except for the, the odd psychopath among us, or the occasional psychopath who's elected to high political office, that people want to think of themselves as good people. We want to believe that we're good, no matter what you're doing. If you're a terrorist blowing up a building somewhere, you think you're doing it for the right reasons. And that the more any kind of awareness of the environmental crisis grows, the more we realize it's really hard to do the right thing. It's even hard to know what the right thing to do is. And that's part of the fundamental crisis of our culture that, you know, what we've done to the environment has created. Absolutely. You must also access a considerable amount of science, that is to say what people might consider hard science. You're at a polytechnic university, right? Right. So this is not creative writing you're doing, although you do some of that as well. Yeah. How much science have you had to learn, avail yourself, the biology, the access to natural chemicals, all of that? How much have you had to educate yourself in that domain in order to be a good philosopher about the environment? Well, a good deal. I mean, the kind of philosophy I've always done is rooted in the relationship between individual human beings and their own subjectivity and wider social and historical forces. So when I wrote several books on Marxist theory, I had to understand political history of the, from the 19th and 20th centuries of everything from the Russian Revolution to the economics of the Great Depression. And if you're going to do environmental philosophy, of which this book is a species, an example, you have to have some idea of the science of climate change, of pollution. You have to study things like the precautionary principle, which is not 
invoked in the United States, but should be. It says that certain kinds of precautions should be taken before you introduce a chemical rather than after you introduce a chemical. You have to have some idea of all those things, and you also have some idea of history. You know, what is a national park? How did it come into being? What's the relationship between national parks and simply preserving vast open lands for rich white men to hunt in? And in what way can we create natural parks in such a way that the natives around those parks benefit rather than are excluded from them? So it really brings to bear everything. It brings to bear psychology as, as well. What is the psychology of a large population that is too frightened to face the truth? So these are psychological questions. So, again, the environmental crisis to me invokes virtually all forms of knowledge that we have and calls on us to widen the lens to see what are the actual consequences of what we're doing. When you put a hamburger in your mouth, what is the relationship between that and the moral condition of the animals who are being tortured throughout their lives and the waste products from these concentrated farms and what they do to the water and the amount of greenhouse gases used in the production, so forth and so forth. So every small part of our daily lives pretty much is now implicated by this. One example I like to use is the following. You have a tough day at work or if you're a college student at classes and you come home and you're tired and you just grab a beer or a cup of coffee and you sit on the couch and you flick on the TV. And we've all done that. I've done it. You've done it. Except actually none of us have ever done that. And the reason we've never done that is that you can't turn on the TV with a remote control. It has to be on in a certain sense in order to receive the impulse from the remote control. It's always on. And DVD players and microwaves and computers and phone chargers that are plugged in, they all draw power from the grid. Now, each one is very small, the amount, vanishingly small, but you add them all up together, and this is what's called standby or phantom power, is 5 to 10% of home energy use in the United States, which is an awful lot of power. How much power is it? Well, you combine Greece and Vietnam, all the power they use in a year, that's about how much it is. Now, nobody asked us before they set up this stupid system. <laughs> nobody said, hey, let's think about the consequences of this. But we're all conditioned to it. It's all built into all our homes. And that's the way it is on a daily, immediate level. But the thing that you run into right away, and I run into this all the time, <laughs> I have a lot of issues with my wife about leaving lights on in the house, right? And as a matter of fact, I unplug my phone charger, and she tends to leave hers in. And I say, but that's still drawing power. And she says, oh, yeah, but it's such a hassle. And it's worth 5% of the energy in order to do that. Now, that's a value judgment. You have a whole section of the book where you talk about values, science, feelings, how the intersection of these plays into this. Yeah, I think that what's difficult, and that's why the theme of the book is how difficult it is to be moral, is that your wife, like me and things that I'm used to, we're used to this illusory ease. It seems easy, just like, to make a bold comparison, it's easier for the heroin addict to take another shot than to go into withdrawal. It's easier for the alcoholic to have another drink than to put down the bottle, and we're used to all this. What's missing is an examination of the consequences. There has been a, a complete whiteout, a blackout of what's actually going on so that we don't know what the slaughterhouses are like. We don't really have a sense of the consequences of global warming. If that was brought before our eyes, if every time, God forbid, a woman died of breast cancer, it was announced, well, this is a personal tragedy to her family, but it's not an individual tragedy. It has something to do with what's in the air and the water and the food and the poisons we've put in there. But we don't want to look at the truth of what's going on. Who can blame us? 
because this is the largest, most threatening change that's ever been demanded of the human species. Uh, you can compare it to the civil rights movement. Now, the civil rights movement was difficult. It was dangerous. People were murdered for pursuing their civil rights. But it wasn't hard to understand, right? Any nine-year-old can understand, oh, these people aren't allowed to vote. They're being murdered by the cops. They're not allowed to sit down in restaurants. They can't get loans, can't get into decent schools, etc. Any nine-year-old can understand what you do about that sort of thing. But the need to make a transition to sustainable energy and how you could possibly do that is very complicated. Even take a simple thing like your microfiber sweater, right? Now, microfibers, uh, they wash well and they clean and they're very lightweight and some of them are waterproof. It's great stuff. Except every time you put a microfiber piece of clothing in the washing machine, microscopic bits of that microfiber are knocked off by the washing process. Now, microfiber is basically plastic. And this plastic then goes into the water supply, goes into the ocean, goes into the fish, and the next time you eat a fish caught wild in the ocean, you're eating plastic. Now, again, nobody looked at this carefully. Nobody thought about it. They just said, oh, microfibers are great. CFCs are great. Remember, CFCs, the chemicals that were in air conditioning, especially car air conditioning, but also home air conditioning. And nobody bothered to check what would happen with CFCs above 40,000 feet. Well, the ozone layer is at 80 to 85,000 feet. And we almost completely knocked out the ozone layer because we hadn't checked. We hadn't thought. We hadn't slowed down the march for ease and profit, ease and profit, and occasionally throw in their military power. So if we can't slow down, well, the cliff is getting closer and closer. When I was in New Zealand back in 1999, the ozone layer, the loss of it, I was so aware of it because they're further south, they're closer to where the ozone hole is. So instead of just having like a wind chill, the wind chill announced on the weather, they have the burn time anywhere from 7 to 30 minutes is a typical burn time there at in 1999 when I was there. I understand that the ozone layer has made a bit of a comeback since then. Yes, it has. So we came very close to the edge. There was a meeting in Montreal, I forget when, maybe 19, early 1990s, and they came up with what was called the Montreal Protocol. Interestingly, the company that was making CFCs, DuPont, knew that there were some problems with it and fought against any regulation, the way these companies almost always do. When the United States made it illegal to use CFCs, but it hadn't been global, what did DuPont do? Did it say, oh, well, this is dangerous, we'll stop? No, they marketed it overseas, and they fought tooth and nail against any regulation until they managed to capture the market on the replacement. So it's clear that whatever else is going on, there's an incredible lack of moral responsibility among the concentrated forces of economic and political power. You know, when you take a serious look at this, you see that these people are guilty of crimes against humanity. When Exxon, knowing that the global climate change was, was happening, and you know they knew because they sent out memos to their own facilities managers to take stock of this because you know, the storms would get worse and the ocean was going to rise, so their facilities had to be aware. At the same time, they hired a public relations firm to cast doubt on the realities of global warming, and they gave them somewhere between 10 to $15 million dollars. Sadly and ironically, this was the exact same public relations firm that had been hired by the tobacco industry to cast doubt on the relation between cancer and smoking. So there's a level of responsibility that we all share. Certainly I share it with my driving and some of the other consumer habits, which aren't fabulous. But there's a level of guilt among the concentrated elite, which is all the more reason why a mass political movement is necessary to rein in the power of the corporate elite and their servants in the government. 
I'm particularly intrigued about the connection between consciousness of environmental issues and the willpower to take action. I was a Peace Corps volunteer for two years in West Africa, and so I lived in a place where there was no electricity. I had kerosene lamps, and water was hauled by a pail from elsewhere. You know, I mean, so I did not waste water when I was brushing my teeth. So it just burns me that my wife lets the water run for 30 seconds when she's brushing her teeth. But the consciousness of it, I, I feel each drop as amount of work that's being loaded onto my shoulders. And of course, people don't. How do you change that consciousness? I mean, the most honest answer would be I haven't the faintest idea. More particularly, I'd say, look, for the last 35 or whatever it is, years, everything in my teaching and my writing and my public speaking has been linked to this. I think that we have not yet taken in the full seriousness of it, and I pray that we'll get there before it becomes absolutely too late. I mean, it, it's not impossible that the climate change will be so great that it will virtually destroy modern civilization, that all the cell phone towers will blow down and too many big cities will be overrun by water and so forth and so on. Or we might just lose 50 to 100 million people, which sounds horrible, but compared to the other scenario, is lighter. Certain things have to become a basic common sense, whether it's, you know, the role of meat in ecological degradation, wasting, you know, the way we waste gasoline. I mean, if you think about what gasoline is, what oil is, it's an incredible gift, concentrated energy brought to you by just almost infinite number of organisms that died millions of years ago. What a gift, right? And we waste it. I mean, it's not just that we uh, that it creates global warming, but the amount we use, the lights left on, the unnecessary miles driven, the fuel hog cars, the homes heated much more than they need to be, so forth and so on, and cooled much more than they need to be. We don't have the proper sense of appreciation. If you're an aspiring violinist and some very rich relative gives you one of these incredible violins from 200 years ago that's worth a million dollars, you don't use it as an ashtray, right? And we have basically used the earth and the oceans as an ashtray, and not just that, but space as well. There are more than 25,000 football or bigger-sized objects that we just left like junk in orbits around the planet. Everywhere we go, we leave junk. <laughs> it's very sad that we're doing that. And I think, and this is part of the way in which the environmental crisis is not just a technical problem, but a crisis for our whole civilization, I think that the younger generations have some kind of awareness of this, whether it's fully conscious or repressed, this leads to a crisis of moral confidence. You know, you might think of any religiously oriented child, like some child is going to a synagogue or a Catholic church or a Protestant church or a, a mosque. Or a Quaker meeting. Or a Quaker meeting. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure Quakers would fit in here, but I'll, I'll tell you, explain the, the example. That all these dominant religions have one thing absolutely in common. Probably Quakers have it too. And you think, well, what could they all have in common? What they all have in common is that they all tell children that they themselves, these teachers, these religious people, they're moral experts whether it's a priest, a rabbi, an imam, a Buddhist, they know what's right morally. Now, you can imagine some 12-year-old who becomes informed, some person like Greta Thunberg in Sweden, some 12-year-old who reads a little bit on the Internet and would stand up in one of the synagogue, the church, the mosque, wherever, and say, who are you to tell me what's right? Look what you've done to the world. Now, what a sad thing it is when the younger generation looks at older generation and loses moral respect. That's a crisis. That's part of the environmental crisis, which has nothing to do with chemicals. It has to do with the moral standing of the older people that young people hopefully should look up to and want to learn from. But 
look what we've done to the world. Who's going to look up to us? And folks, we're speaking with Roger Gottlieb, author of Morality and the Environmental Crisis Today for Spirit in Action. I'll have links to his site. You can just Google Roger Gottlieb or you can Google Morality and the Environmental Crisis. I'm sure you'll come right to him. He is a professor of philosophy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and he's also associate editor of Tikkun. And I want to ask you a little bit about that as we go on, Roger, as well. I asked you just previous question, Roger, uh, how we can get people to change. And I've seen people to change. I mean, obviously, people in Togo, where I was in the Peace Corps, or in 1996, I remember when I was visiting in Kenya, and I was in Nairobi, you know, so it's the capital city. There's technology around them. But when people have limited amount of electricity or water costs in their shower there, they had a shower in their house, they did not have the hot water running because that would have taken electricity, and they counted each penny. And when price comes back to us, so a capitalist says, let the price rise, and that will inform your decision, and you'll take action. If you just leave your phone charger plugged in, and you notice that that costs you another dollar per month, then, you know, of course, you'll take action. Maybe. But not. I like laws like they had. I think in Germany, maybe it was in the Netherlands, I read maybe even 20 years ago that, you know, we have such a horrible job with all this packaging we get. You know, just crap of cardboard and plastic on a toy that's, you know, two inches long and, but, you know, they have a four by four <laughs> display for something like that, you know, four foot by four foot. So they they made a, a law at one point, I understand, that the people who produced the packaging had to take it back. Right. That, that nobody else had to get rid of it, you have to deal with it. And so, I mean, obviously, laws can affect that as well as economics. Can you think of other factors? Look, I teach a university, and while there are laws against public nudity, I don't think anybody consults that law. Nobody has ever come into my classroom undressed because you just don't do that. <laughs> so there has to be a form of education where... You just don't do that. You just don't waste. You don't toss the garbage out of the car. You know, you don't dispose of toxic substances. But again, this has to be concentrated force such that people who make a profit out of making the waste, those people are restrained. I mean, it, it is good that some of the largest corporations in the world have committed themselves publicly. I don't know how much they're actually doing, but they've committed themselves publicly to re seriously, significantly reducing their carbon footprint. Yet at the same time, Apple will never say, you know what, you've consumed enough. Don't buy any more Apple products for a few years. They're never going to say consume less. So until another kind of orientation towards the structure of the economy is taken, we're stuck in a capitalist cycle of endless increase, endless increase, grow, grow, grow. Every political candidate says we've got to grow the economy. And my question is why? Why do we have to grow the economy? Maybe the economy is big enough already. Maybe it should shrink. Now, that doesn't mean that it's equitably distributed. Of course, it isn't. But it's not the size that we need, increased size. It's a better distribution system and a more intelligent use of what we have. Well, this takes significant concentrated political force to goad the state into taking rational decisions instead of having the state influenced by political contributions and leading the state to take irrational decisions, as it certainly has been doing recently. 
And what you're providing in the book, again, Morality and the Environmental Crisis, is I think you're providing an eyes-open way to look at both the truth of the environmental crisis. You don't spend a long time right at the beginning laying out how horrible it is. Most of us have pretty good awareness of that. But then you go into, on many levels of personal reflection, insight, actions, consequences, you look at the whole shtick and you understand, I I think a person who finishes reading Morality and Environmental Crisis will understand from so many perspectives. One thing that interested me, Roger, as you're writing the book, you do not just make straw man arguments of your opponents. The philosophy, what supports capitalism, what supports comfort or whatever, you don't just make straw man arguments. You try and consider them and as if people sit with it, they'll follow the consequences on down. Did you have to do that in your personal life in order to be able to do it so well in the book? I think it's important to understand what people are thinking. Now, you know, there are limits. There's certain kind of crazy thoughts I'm not going to particularly engage with or try to argue with. And I've learned from bitter experience in a variety of ways that you can't argue with a crazy person. But when somebody says something like, well, Capitalism is great at technological innovation. Let capitalism and the marketplace solve the environmental crisis, which is what I have seen argued. I think it's worth really examining the degree to which this kind of argument makes sense. Actually, it doesn't make sense because capitalism requires great expansion and capitalism fights to a great extent as possible to keep environmental consequences as what the technical term is, an externality. So that if you sell me shoes, I buy the shoes and I pay for the shoes and I get the shoes and that's great. But then shoes require a lot of toxic chemicals and you just take them out back and you dump them in the river and that kills fish in the river. It poisons the fishermen. The bed and breakfast along the river have to close because of toxic fumes, so forth and so on. All those costs are socialized. So it turns out that capitalists really like socialism, but they like the socializing of the consequences of environmental destruction, not the profits from it. So you have to understand that this is, as I said before, the most difficult transformation. We have, as a species for 10,000 years at least, been concerned with controlling nature whether it's finding the place where the berries are most prevalent or rudimentary attempts at building or the beginnings of science and technology 3,000 years ago, that's been our focus. But now we have to focus on something else. We have to switch our view from domination to cooperation, from control to partnership. You know, 60 years ago, Rachel Carson said that the notion that science is just about control is from the most primitive, the Neanderthal stage of human thought. And that's a big turn. I think some of us are coming to understand it. There are forms of scientific knowledge now which are rooted instead of in domination, in some kind of partnership, in some kind of understanding, in some kind of respect. This is not impossible, but it's very difficult. And to find your way to thinking of it, that's why I wrote the book. Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action. Nordenspiritradio.org is our website. We have links there to all of our guests of the past 14 years, including our guest for today, Roger Gottlieb, who is a professor of philosophy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. He's also associate editor of Tikkun. Links to him and to the books and to our guests and to the radio stations where we're carried, all of that is on Nordenspiritradio.org, including a place to come 
comment on these programs. We love two-way communication, so please do leave us a rating and a comment on this program. And if you feel led, please click on the donate button. This work is supported not by government, not by corporations, but by you, the listeners. It's full-time work, so please click donate when you come even more so. Make sure you support alternate forms of media. Specifically, I urge you to support the local community radio station wherever you are. Local media is invaluable. Please support them. Again, Roger Gottlieb is here. His book is Morality and Environmental Crisis. I say his book, but it's one of some 20 that he's produced. He explains things cogently, quickly, as you can tell as we're talking here, and that's what you'll see in this book. So please follow the link from NorthernSpiritRadio.org and pick up the book and enlarge your arsenal of motivation, your arsenal. I, I don't like using military terms after I am Quaker but your reserve, your resources for making better choices in the world. There's one experiment that you give to one of your classes, Roger, that I just loved. And back in 1997, I was helping organize this kind of a public retreat thing that we did at a local nature center. It was called Living Lightly on the Earth. So we had people come in. Everybody who participated in the workshop that myself and my wife led, we gave them an assignment for one week, set yourself an experiment, and then come back in a week and report on your experience of it. And for myself, what I did, which is kind of interesting, I chose to be by a tree outside, and this was in November in Wisconsin, for half an hour each day for the week and then come back and just report on my experience of that. Another person came back, and what they did was they put a sticky note on their toilet, and each time they flushed, they kept track just of how many they flushed. Just increased consciousness, that's what it's about. Could you talk about the assignment that you've given to your classes? And I just thought it was brilliant and wonderful. I'd love to hear how you think it affected. Well, the assignment, uh, I call it the tree journal. And in my philosophy in the environment class, one of the things they have to do to pass the class is to find one tree and sit with it for 15 to 20 minutes, three or four times a week, and keep a record of the experience. And I'm very clear that they can write anything they want. If they want to write, Gottlieb is an idiot, this is incredibly boring, they can write that. The only thing they have to do to pass the assignment is to write legibly so I can read what they've written. And again, keep in mind, I'm teaching future engineers and science majors and computer science types. This is not, you know, Oberlin uh, with a bunch of liberal arts majors. These are, these are hardcore kids. Interestingly enough, it really does what I want it to do, which is for them to develop a personal relationship with one piece of the natural world, not nature as a whole, ecosystems as a whole, species as a whole, just one thing. So you get some, you know, sort of football player, fraternity type guy, and he starts out by saying, yeah, this is stupid, Gottlieb's an idiot. And then two weeks later, he starts saying, oh, well, you know, this tree's kind of interesting. And by four weeks, he's given it a name, and he calls it George. And by the seventh week, we have seven-week terms where I teach. By the seventh week, he's saying, gee, George doesn't look so great today. I wonder if it's acid rain, and I wonder if it's acid rain from my driving. And that's seven weeks. So the personal connection, I think, is very important, especially a personal connection over time. Even when we, quote, appreciate nature, unquote, in our society, too often it's like a screensaver. It's something you see out of the window of a car. It's a nature special where everything is speeded up. Nature is slow for the most part. Nature takes time. It takes time to understand and appreciate. And in a society which systematically encourages ADD, 
systematically encourages a lack of patience, a demand for an immediate satisfaction, immediate uh, something to fulfill the craving, to fulfill the emptiness, getting in touch with something that's natural and slow and real can be a very healing experience, but it requires a breaking of the habit. It's very easy to get the habit of speed, of immediate response that one gets from a cell phone or a computer. I mean, I, I saw it myself. I'm old enough so that I grew up when there were no computers in ordinary life, and I saw them come into existence, and I've had a whole series of them. And after a while, I began to see, oh, well, gee, it's harder for me to sit down and read a book now. Now, I've produced 20 books, and I've edited many, and I've been edited a whole series of books, and I've been a book reviewer. So the thought that I, I'm having a hard time reading a book, that was pretty scary. And I realized it was because I was getting hooked on the instantaneous switch, 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 switch that you get when you click on a computer. Now that children are starting with their cell phones at five, six, seven years old, their minds are being shaped by this. And neurologically, this is not something healthy. We know that it's already having very bad effects on children's capacity for relationship. We know it's having bad effects on their eyesight. We know that a lot of computer programs are structured to give you kind of dopamine responses in the brain that mimic addiction. All these things are a form of self-pollution. Just like kids are born with toxic chemicals in their bloodstream, we're giving them toxic toys, toxic media that's having very damaging effects on their development. Absolutely. And I want to talk about a few of the philosophical pieces or uh, I might say guidelines for how we structure or decide what we do. One of them, for instance, it's, it's pretty common for people to suggest, people on maybe the fringe, to suggest what we need to do is accord natural rights. We need to give rights to an animal or to a plant or some other being besides humans. You weigh in against this, even though you're sympathetic to the direction of their desire. Yes, I think the mistake is to think that the only way we can talk about moral relationships is to talk about rights. And I think that's, that's a mistake. And it's understandable because that's very common in political discourse these days. And we try to pack everything into rights. I don't think it really makes, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, for the following reason, to me, rights are like the lines on a parking lot. You go to a parking lot, you've got to park between the lines. Now, you can drive a little car or a big car. You can drive a station wagon. You can drive an SUV, a uh, Ford, a Chevy, a Honda, whatever, just as long as you park within the lines. And rights are like that. You can go to church or not go to church. I can go to synagogue or not go to synagogue. I can get a trial by jury. You can get a trial by jury. You can express your political opinions. I can express my political opinions. There's no essential connection between us in that discussion. There's just a way to keep us reasonably equal and separate. Now, think of another context of moral connection. Think of your family. So Jane wants to go to the beach with her friends, and Jack uh, wants to go play football, but it's the weekend that we're supposed to go to the nursing home and visit Grandma. Now, we sit down to discuss this. Are we going to talk about Grandma's right to a visit or Janie's right to go to the beach or Jack's right to play football? I don't think so. I think we're going to talk about love and care and who gets to flourish and trade-offs, and it's going to unfold as much as it can in a context of mutual care, mutual love. That's because in families, we're essentially in relationship. We're not separated by those lines in the parking lot. So when we relate to nature, we have to keep in mind that we're going to be using nature. We're going to be exploiting nature. We're going to be consuming nature. Why? Because we're natural beings and we live on the earth. Even if we all became vegan overnight, which I think would be great, we're still going to have fields of plants and pull up the weeds. 
and want to keep the insects, the troublesome insects, off it. Every time we build a house or live in a house, we've displaced earthworms and countless other bugs from the soil. And we're going to be cutting down trees and using them and so forth and so on. We're going to be consuming nature, using it, displacing it. To talk about its rights, then, doesn't make much sense because I'm hopefully when I build my house, I'm not going to be displacing another human being to do it. So what's the limit on us? What's the control? What's the shape this can take? Well, we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? Are we building this house, huge, sprawling suburban house of 6,000 square feet? Is there really that what we need? Does that make us happy? What do we have to do in work in order to support that house, to pay for it? How ecologically destructive is that? What are the materials being used? And on and on and on. We have to ask ourselves, are we living according to, I use the term spiritual, somebody else might say psychological, are we living by spiritual virtues like self-awareness, acceptance, gratitude, compassion, and love? Those are things that lead to ongoing happiness. Greed and the desire for power and instantaneous thrills and addiction not so much. They're not making us very happy. The United States has a lot of riches. doesn't have a lot of happiness, which is why there's so many drugs, legal and illegal, psychiatric and other drugs that were, you know, so everybody's hooked on something to get them through the night, even though most of us don't go hungry. I think maybe you just answered this by what you said, Roger. And again, folks, we're speaking to Roger Gottlieb, author of Morality and Environmental Crisis. Links to him and his book are available on org. But what you just said about the motivations, what guidelines we follow, maybe answers this. You address in the book specifically why a careful cost-benefit analysis, something that a corporation or maybe a capitalist concept would say would be necessary to make a good decision, why is that insufficient for choosing our future? Look, the notion that the present capitalist economy is capable of doing anything carefully is, I think, kind of silly. If you take a look around at what it produces, what it consumes, what it, attitudes it tries to encourage through advertising, careful is not the word I'd apply. I don't know who would. Secondly, cost-benefit analysis is based on some sense of what's valuable. And the question then is, what's valuable? To the heroin addict, what's valuable is the next shot. To the alcoholic, it's the next drink. To the sex addict, it's the next meaningless affair. If you're just trying to do a cost-benefit analysis, that presumes you already know what's important, what's worthwhile, what's of value. And the problem is that we don't know that. Now, certainly, if people were really acquainted with the costs of the current environmental practices, if every seven-year-old was taken on a tour of a slaughterhouse before they were given their first hamburger, or if people could actually see the erosion of topsoil, we've lost something like 40% of topsoil, if people were acquainted with the fact that something like 35 to 40% of ponds and streams in the United States can no longer support life, they're so polluted, I could go on with this. You can see why nobody invites me to cocktail parties. I'm kind of a drag. <laughs> but if people were really acquainted with the cost and they weren't shunted off to the next generation or shunted off to the people who have to live with the poisons, then we could begin to talk about cost-benefit analysis. And again, a crazy person, an addict, is only interested in what's in the present. The value of the present is enormous. And that of, a, of the future is discounted way, way down. So until we shift our priorities, shift our understanding, and make that more of the common sense of our time, cost-benefit analysis just ain't going to cut it. 
There's a term, though, that you use that I really like, though I don't think it's really easy to grasp, maybe even for me. And I'm pretty in line with almost everything that you're saying, Roger. You talk about environmental democracy. What do you mean by that, and why should people latch on to it? Right. Yeah, the term is ecological democracy. And what I mean by it is, is this. If you think of democracy just as individuals voting, you go into the voting booth and I go and she goes and they go, then there's no real connection. There's no sense of community and we don't learn anything about each other. So people have been talking for the last 30 years about something they call deliberative or communicative democracy, which is more like a town meeting approach. You sit down, you find out what other people are thinking, what they want. And then you develop that even further and say, well, it's not just their kind of rational claims that you listen to, but you, you listen to their emotions. What are they upset about? What are they crying about? What are they angry about? What are they scared of? That should be part of what you understand when you try to make decisions as a community. And then you can push that one step further and say, well, if emotions are part of what's being communicated, then what's being communicated doesn't have to be in a language. If it doesn't have to be in a language, then why does it have to be human? When the trees all have these black spots on the leaves because of the increased heat from global warming or they're all being chewed down by the pine bark beetle in the Rockies, which has extra growing seasons because of global warming, when frogs, because of pollution from pesticides, are being born with organs outside their body, isn't that a form of communication? And just as we represent the interests of infants who can't speak or people with Alzheimer's who can't speak, why can't we represent the interests of the trees and the frogs and everything else? Why can't we see the United States as a nation not just of people, but of beings who are alive? We've learned to appreciate people, or some of us have learned, or we're trying to learn, to appreciate people of different races and different religions and different genders and all that sort of thing. Why can't we appreciate the value of and include in our calculations and actually have representatives for the people who stay rooted in the earth and the people with wings and the people who walk on four legs. That would be the beginnings of an ecological democracy. And you'll get that in a lot more detail, folks, in the book Morality and the Environmental Crisis by Roger Gottlieb. Uh, by the way, Roger, of course, I love the last name in the Quaker meeting in Milwaukee. And I was part of it. Uh, Debbie and Judith Gottlieb were part of the Quaker meeting there. God love, I think, is that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Did that have any connection for you in terms of getting into environmentalism? It was interesting. Some of my first research and writing and book production in this field was about religious environmentalism, which I sort of fell into by accident. But I, I actually created, edited the first big anthology that could be used as the, you know, the single text for a course in religious environmentalism. And interestingly, there has been a tremendous amount of work done by religious people, by theologians, by religious leaders, by leading institutions, and by lay people. Has done a tremendous amount of work over the last 30 years. Uh, I only wish the philosophical community had been as progressive. It's now realized in religious circles that just as you're going to talk about who has sex with who and making sure you get the tax deduction and this sort of thing, that environmental issues are central. And that is a fundamental change, a fundamental change among other reasons, because there has been a fair amount of joint work between scientists and religious community. There have been joint press conferences and joint letters to the government, joint statements, virtually all the theological statements from the Pope to the National Council of Churches to individual religious thinkers begin with a statement of scientific conclusions. You take something like the Catholic Church, which for 1,500 years, every time it encountered an indigenous tradition of people who saw nature as kin, they tried to murder those people or convert them. 
And now, over the last 30 years, you see statements from the church talking with respect about nature-honoring traditions of indigenous peoples. So this is a fundamental shift. Is it enough? No. So few things are these days. But it is a fundamental change in religious life. One of the things that you mentioned many times in the book, and you've already said it, I don't know, three, four, or five times in this interview, you talk about meat-eating and versus veganism. And I've been a vegetarian since 1976. I get it. I understand why this is important, not only environmentally, but morally, ethically. At the local synagogue here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live, all their meals are vegetarian, not necessarily vegan. And in part, that makes kosher a lot easier. You don't have to do the two yeah, different right. dishes and all that kind of thing. But some of the people are vegetarian or vegan there who are part of the synagogue, and so that's why they have imposed this rule. And whenever you they have a shared meal, it's always vegetarian. Could you say first why this is such a big deal? A lot of people still don't know this. And number two, do you see within Judaism, where your practice has been, do you see this kind of practice, consciousness, morality taking hold? Well, it's a big deal because the industrial production of meat, which means huge farms, you know, countless animals stuffed into small spaces, the use of antibiotics, cutting off the beaks of chickens because if they had beaks, they'd tear each other to bits because they're stuffed into these tiny cages, veal calves in boxes where they can't turn around so they don't develop any musculature, that these things are enormously cruel. And so for a start, it's the simple fact of the cruelty makes it a moral issue. The second reason is that industrial farms produce monumental amounts of waste, waste that has tremendously deleterious effects on water quality in the surrounding areas. A third reason is that industrial farming in general requires a huge amount of greenhouse gases, and it's one of the major contributors to greenhouse gases. Some people say it's the largest contributor of all the economic sectors. There's some disagreement about that, but nobody disagrees that it's very, very large. Fourth thing, of course, is that eating a lot of meat, very much meat, is bad for your health. So in all those reasons, it's not a great idea. Now, Judaism isn't much on animal rights. There's some stuff in there, interestingly, in the sabbatical year when you don't grow any food in the Bible, uh, you're supposed to let wild animals eat what grows spontaneously. So there's some stuff there. If your donkey, if the enemy of your donkey falls down on the road, you're supposed to help the donkey raise itself even though it's your enemy's donkey. So there's a, a certain amount of awareness. But, you know, this is one of the last things that people will come around to, I think, institutionally. I mean, the temple that you're talking about where you live sounds great, but it's not going to be too soon. You know, in the 17th century, there were some Protestant women who claimed the right to preach as preachers, which was, not, of course, not allowed. You don't have women speaking up in church, God forbid. And they had a critique of patriarchy that was very, you know, on the mark but they were just too much in advance of their time. There was a woman named Margaret Fuller in the 1830s and 1840s who wrote breathtakingly critical work about patriarchy. Again, way ahead of her time. There are certain ideas which we have to understand depend on certain historical changes to come into existence. They just will not happen, and as frustrating, as difficult as it is, we can, you know, make marginal changes. You can have some, you know, marginal rules for the way slaughterhouses operate, and you can protect pets in certain kinds of ways, and you can advocate, really, for transparency in the meat industry, you know, whereas they are making it a big crime to go in and film what's going on there. You should simply demand. You should, there should be a law. This has to be open for public inspection. Absolutely. And then let people see what it is that they're eating when they eat that stuff. 
So do I take it that you're a vegan? Uh, no, it's one of my moral failings. I, I eat very little. Non, I mean, I would say 95% of my food is vegan. But 5% isn't, and it's one of my moral failings. Well, we can all go there. That's yeah. <laughs> that's fine. And I and I like actually in the book, Roger, where you, you actually talk about the difference between guilt and other motivations in terms of achieving things. You evidently haven't been whipping yourself because you have eaten some 5% of your diet, which is not vegan. But there's a better way of thinking about what motivates people. Lots of things motivate people. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's wanting to be a better person. Sometimes it's some guy wants to date a girl who's vegan, so he goes <laughs> vegan. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful short film, about 40 minutes, called The Witness, about a guy who became an animal rights activist. And he wanted to date this girl who asked him to babysit her cat when she went away for a couple of weeks. So, so he kept the cat, and he got kind of attached to the cat, and he used to stroke the cat. And then he was having a chicken dinner once, and he saw a drumstick, and he realized it was the exact same shape as the kind of back part of the cat that he used to stroke. And he was thinking, wait a minute, I love the cat. How can I eat this chicken? And he was a contractor. He owned a big truck, and he outfitted the truck with movies so he would show movies of animal cruelty, and he'd stop at an intersection in New York City and just drop the back of his truck and just show these movies, and people would see it passing by. A lovely movie. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> now, who knows what's going to make the difference? Look at the women's movement. You know, women were oppressed for thousands of years, and there would be kind of eruptions. And in the 1960s, there was the biggest eruption that had happened, late 1960s, leading into the 70s. Exactly why that happened? Well, it's complicated, a lot of different factors, and it was connected to the civil rights movement and so forth. But we don't know, and that's one of the things about thinking about the future. You don't know when something might sweep over the human race to realize what's going on. Will it happen? I don't know. That's why when I think about the future, I don't put a lot of emphasis on hope because hope presumes we know what's going to happen. That's the problem with despair as well. We don't know what's going to happen, so why despair? What we need now is not hope. We need courage, courage to fight, courage to resist, courage to join with other people to create an environmental movement that is unstoppable in terms of creating a government that will limit the powers of corporations and of itself to destroy the only earth we're ever going to have. Folks, I want you to realize that at the end of Morality and the Environmental Crisis, last chapter, Roger Gottlieb includes two possible future stories about environmentalism. And I, I think they're excellent. I, I really commend you for doing this, Roger. Thank you. Uh, but I also recognize that you maybe have done a lot more of it than I thought. I haven't actually read your book, Engaging Voices, Tales of Morality and Meaning is in an Age of Global Warming, which is a fictional book, right? right. As opposed to the philosophical and the scientific stuff that you usually do. Engaging Voice is a collection of short stories, each with a particular environmental theme ranging over, you know, what's the meaning of life and are we environmentalists because we love nature, we love people, what's the proper form of environmental struggle, what about the rights of animals. I mean, I have people sitting around a Thanksgiving dinner table arguing about animal rights and the role of capitalism. I have a father who was put in jail for gross economic fraud as part of a big corporation and his son is a communist who wants a political party that's going to create a totally new order and they're having dinner in a fancy restaurant. So you know, a few other stories as well. The nice thing about stories is that it arouses people's emotions and you can put without straining, you can put different viewpoints in the same story.
Again, folks, Roger Gottlieb puts excellent different perspectives in in the book, Morality and Environmental Crisis. You're not just cherry-picking the points of view that you want to talk about. You're really doing a wide-ranging philosophical look at many of the issues and cultures and practices that are involved. I'm wondering, Roger, if you can look anywhere around the world and see what you think are good environmental cultures. Well, I certainly think Scandinavia has us hands down. I remember I saw a documentary 20 years ago, I think, where every pint of toxic waste in Denmark, they knew exactly who produced it, where it was, where it was going to go for disposal, how it was going to be disposed of. I know that this is, again, a statistic from some years ago. I don't imagine it's changed that much. At that time, America had 1,500 legal food additives, 1,500, count them. Germany had six. So that sort of thing, you find individual political groups or individual, I mean, when Mongolia became independent, they've had sort of gone downhill to some extent, but when it became independent, the president said, we have to, we want to develop slowly, we want to develop carefully, we don't want to wipe out the native species, we don't want to develop breakneck and just get more electricity and more smog and more economic inequality, we want to do it in more in a kind of Buddhist way. And that was a very powerful idea. You had uh, Buddhist groups in Sri Lanka that were trying for a more realistic, a more careful, a more community-based form of economic development. The notion that economic development should look like the United States or Western Europe is a distortion. It doesn't have to look like that. And given the way we're consuming the Earth's resources, it better not look like that. So every country, every religion, every group has its environmental activists, its environmental warriors, its environmental courage. You can look up on the Internet the Goldman Prize, which is given to environmental activists every year and see inspiring stories of people doing incredible work, often at the risk of their lives. There are 30 to 40 environmental journalists who are murdered every year simply for printing the truth about resource extraction or cattle ranching or the destruction of a rainforest. So it's the struggle of, I believe, it's the struggle of our time. Can we change this fundamental nature of human civilization towards something that makes sense? We've been given all these technological toys. We've created this enormous, breathtaking power. Can we learn to use it wisely? That's the question. I am impressed with your ability to convey these, in the book, Morality, Environmental Crisis, but also just talking to you today, I'm thinking that you might be a very popular teacher there at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Am I right? Am I wrong? Is there some measure that, I mean, these are all these science and math geeks, right? Yeah, I think some people, I mean, the last teaching reviews I got, some people said he's great, he's funny, he's open to different viewpoints. Other people said he's not open to any other viewpoint <laughs> than his own. And I had one guy say, this course changed my life. So, look, what I'm saying is very scary. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I'm a pretty eloquent person. I can tell a good joke if I have to. But the reality out there is really scary. And people who don't want to be scared, don't know how to deal with their fear, to them I'm a threat and they don't like me. Folks, you can drink deep by picking up Morality Environmental Crisis by Roger Gottlieb. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. You can just Google and get to it. It's a little bit hard to tell you exactly the characters you're going to type to get there, but it's easy if you click at nordenspiritradio.org. Roger, it's eloquently written, spoken. The passion is obvious, and it's passion that I share. So I really hope people will do your tree experiment and that they'll find some way to connect with the natural world that will change change our relationship to creation and lead to a possible future for this country. Thank you for being a force for that. Thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed it.
folks, just remember you can find the links to Roger Gottlieb, Morality and Environmental Crisis on NordenSpiritRadio.org, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 